Mod Pod listeners, believe it or not, this is the final episode of 2019. We launched Modern Optometry and the first episode of the Mod Pod in March and never looked back. It's been an amazing journey and the Mod Squad is looking forward to taking that momentum into 2020. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's have a listen to our three selected articles from the November-December issue of Modern Optometry. First up is Justin Kwan, an associate optometrist at Professional Eye Care Center in Niles, Illinois, who explains how virtual reality and its cousin, augmented reality, offer great potential in the realm of eye care. Here he is reading his article, Virtual Reality, coming to a lane near you. Commercial virtual reality devices have exploded onto the market. In 2016, approximately 87% of VR headsets sold worldwide were mobile phone-based. Standalone wireless headsets that don't need to connect to a PC or smartphone will soon predominate over tethered headsets. Global shipments for the VR and augmented reality market are expected to reach 7.6 million units in 2019. Companies in this space include Oculus, the tech firm, not the maker of the Pentacam, Google, HTC, Samsung, Sony, and Lenovo. VR devices have now become affordable, allowing access to just about everyone. They are used in the gaming and entertainment, retail, military, and healthcare sectors. Most systems are fully immersive, allowing the user to enter a space that would otherwise be difficult or impossible to enter. Companies can virtually bring in new hires for training, minimizing time and costs spent on travel. Friends, separated by hundreds or thousands of miles, domestically or internationally, now have a medium on which to meet and catch up. Surgeons in training can practice unlimited times and be tested on their competence. Current technology suggests a future in which they will be able to operate remotely. VR devices work by using high-powered plus lenses to focus the virtual environment at a set focal distance. Accommodation is therefore fixed, while Virgin's eye movements are used to take in a field of view that can be up to 110 degrees wide. The dissociation between accommodation and Virgin's can potentially contribute to visual discomfort in the user. Recent models allow the pupillary distance to be set and employ eye tracking to provide a more accurate and seamless experience. With the Asia-Pacific region experiencing the fastest growth in VR adoption, there is concern regarding the exacerbation of myopia progression due to prolonged use of these devices, especially in a population that already has a greater than 80% prevalence of myopia in many regions. Turnbull and colleagues tested the effects of a VR device in young adults. Participants spent 40 minutes each in four environments, VR indoors, VR outdoors, real-world indoors, and real-world outdoors. In all four environments, there was no change in phoria, stereopsis, or accommodative amplitude. Choroidal thickness, as a proxy for risk of myopia progression, was found to be thicker after VR device use, suggesting that there is little risk of myopia progression with VR use. Historically, excessive near work raises concerns of progressive myopia due to a lag of accommodation and hyperopic defocus in the retina. VR head-mounted displays can also affect the tear film. Turnbull et al. found that subjects using VR versus conventional desktop computers had increases in outer eyelid and corneal temperatures, improving lipid layer grade and non-invasive tear film breakup time. 
A different group found blink rates to be reduced from 23.95 blinks per minute down to 10.62 with the VR headset, which makes sense with the task at hand. However, the VR headset must act as a moisture goggle counteracting de-evaporative from reduced blink rate. Traditional in-office testing for visual performance may not reflect real-world challenges. Majeros and colleague used an Oculus Rift VR system to evaluate impairment in individuals with glaucoma by presenting VR stimuli. Patients with glaucoma were found to react to movement and rotation more erratically than controls, losing their balance more easily. Objective glaucoma testing is also possible with a VR-type headset developed by N-Goggle Diagnostics. The company uses what it calls brain-computer interface to non-invasively screen, diagnose, and monitor glaucoma through neurostimulation and feedback. A case control study in glaucoma found that the device had a sensitivity of 85% and a specificity of 71%, far better than 24-2's CETA standard automated perimetry metrics of mean deviation and pattern standard deviation. The N-Goggle test has many potential advantages over standard perimetry, including better repeatability, less noise, more objectivity, and test duration of 3 minutes per eye. Vivid Vision has introduced an immersive VR system that incorporates natural gesture tracking as an adjunct to office-based and home-based vision therapy. Common conditions that can be treated with the system include ambiopia, strabismus, and convergence insufficiency. In patients with amblyopia, the stronger eye is given less signal strength until the weaker eye improves to the point at which both images are combined and depth is perceived all the time. Interactive games keep patients engaged. The system has been evaluated in studies published in peer-reviewed journals and presented at meetings. Augmented reality, or AR, takes the real world we live in and overlays digital content and features on top. An AR experience that gained popularity a few years ago was the mobile game Pokemon Go. More recently, the AR game Harry Potter Wizards Unite has garnered attention. In the automotive world, an example of AR is heads-up display systems that can project a vehicle speed into the lower field of view of the driver's side windshield. In the future, such systems might add digitized color to highlight lane lines when a slight deviation in direction is sensed, or they might project indications of a safe following distance from other cars based on speed and conditions. The Ingenuity 3D Visualization System incorporates a 3D stereoscopic high-definition digital video camera with a surgical microscope and a large high-definition screen with AR elements. The surgeon wears 3D glasses to view the screen rather than looking through the oculars of the microscope. A heads-up design that has ergonomic benefits. Because the whole surgical team can see each step of the procedure, all can actively participate and anticipate the surgeon's needs. The system has customized settings for enhanced viewing. Also, there's no need to drape and prep the scope. Oculens AR Wear Glasses are AR devices designed for use by people with age-related macular degeneration, or AMD. Michael Freeman, the CEO of Ocutrix, said he founded the company in 2015 because he was inspired to create an AR device for his late father who had AMD. The AR glasses pair with the user's digital devices. For individuals with low vision, scotomas in the visual field are first mapped out in the clinic. Then, the glasses technology fills in what is lost in the scotoma by displaying that visual information just adjacent to the scotoma in areas of remaining functional vision. Testing of an early prototype caused Mr. Freeman's father to exclaim, I haven't seen your nose for years! 
These AR glasses can restore independence and quality of life to individuals with AMD or low vision, and they can also be used by these patients' eye care professionals for remote patient monitoring. VR and AR is here to stay. Devices that employ these technologies will be increasingly adopted by the public, and this can create talking points for us to use with our patients and their children. The potential of VR and AR in the medical space is seemingly limitless, and many patients stand to benefit in the short and long terms. What once seemed futuristic in movies such as Minority Report and Iron Man is becoming reality today. Do you see yourself embracing VR and AR technology in your practice? What about specialty contact lenses? Are you comfortable discussing options with your patients and dispensing these lenses? If you are, that's great. If you're not, but you want to step up your contact lens game, then this next topic is just for you. Heck, even if you're already dispensing these lenses with ease, you still may pick up a pearl or two. Let's hear what Stephen Turpin of Cascadia Eye in Washington State has to say on the subject. Making specialty lenses a part of your practice can allow you to change many of your patients' lives in a matter of seconds. For patients with irregular corneas or severe ocular surface disease, simply applying a specialty lens can instantly improve their quality of life. There are challenges, however. Choosing among lens options and dealing with insurance coverage and fee structures can be confusing and frustrating for everybody involved. Here are a few tips to make the process a little smoother for you and your patients. One of the first lessons I learned when I started my specialty lens practice was the importance of a consultation visit. Initially, there was a hurry to get the fitting started and help the patient as quickly as possible. Diagnostic lenses would often be applied at the patient's first visit. This overeager approach, however, resulted in overruns on appointment times, rushed patient education, and unnecessary remakes and follow-ups. Once we instituted an initial consultation visit, many of these issues disappeared. Our consultation visit includes taking an extended patient history, acquiring a composite corneal topography, conducting a thorough refraction, and performing anterior segment health evaluation. Based on the information we collect, we then discuss lens options with the patient. The consultation visit ensures that there is ample time to develop a treatment plan and make sure everyone is on the same page before beginning the fitting process. For most patients, we bill the initial consultation as a medical visit, CPT code 99213 or 99202. More often than not, we are evaluating a medical condition, keratoconus, corneal graph, etc., and determining the best lens option to address it. For those rare cases in which a patient doesn't have a medical condition but still requires a specialty lens, we charge a consultation fee, which is later applied to the lens fitting fee if the patient decides to proceed after the consultation. During any transaction, the recipient is always more satisfied if he or she understands the value of the good or the service. The job of the eye care providers is not to sell the idea of specialty contact lenses, but to help our patients realize their value and then to empower the patients to choose which type of lens is right for them. In our consultation process, all lens options are presented and recommendations are made based on each patient's particular needs. During all of our consultations, we discuss three lens options, soft, often custom, corneal gas permeable lenses, including hybrid materials, and scleral lenses. The pros and cons of each design are addressed in relation to the patient's unique situation. For example, even if a patient is not a strong candidate for soft lenses, we always discuss the design and explain that Due to the patient's amount of corneal irregularity, the vision quality of a soft material on his or her eye would likely be no better than that of their spectacle lenses. Providing an in-depth explanation of each option helps patients understand why a more complicated or expensive design may be necessary to help them meet their goals. Once all lens options have been discussed, both parties can come to an agreement on which lens is right for the patient. 
At the end of the consultation visit, the patient should understand the value of his or her choice, feel as though he or she contributed to the decision, and commit to the treatment process. There is no consensus on the merits of doctors discussing fees directly with patients. Some believe that it causes undue influence on treatment decisions and that the quality of care can be compromised. Others believe it's unethical not to mention fees. Both are reasonable arguments. In the case of specialty lenses, when insurance coverage of services and materials is far from guaranteed, discussing fees is essential. Fees shouldn't necessarily be the first thing mentioned, but they should be communicated at some point so the patient has an understanding of his or her responsibilities in terms of payment. In our practice, all patients sign an agreement before starting the lens fitting process. It outlines the length of the fitting period, 90 days, the terms of the fitting, and the cost, which is categorized by lens type. Each patient receives a paper copy of the agreement for his and her records. Additionally, we write down the ICD-10, CPT, and V codes for each lens option discussed during the consultation so the patient can contact his or her insurance company before the fitting process in order to determine coverage. We also provide patients with a letter of medical necessity, if the lenses are truly medically necessary, so that they have another piece of documentation to help get their services covered. Patients are far more likely to accept out-of-pocket costs if they know that we did everything we could on our end to help obtain insurance coverage. In the complicated world of specialty contact lens fitting, the key is to discuss all the specifics and show the patient the value of the service at the beginning of the process. Once clear expectations are set, your only job is to fit the lenses. The more pain-free and easy you make the lens fitting for your patients, the happier they will be and the more likely to refer others to your practice. Have any specialty lens prescribing tips of your own to share? Send them to us at modernod at bmctoday.com. Let's move on to the last article of the episode, by one of MOD's chief medical editors, Leslie O'Dell, of Dry Eye Center of PA at Wheatland Eye Care Center in Manchester, Pennsylvania. Did you know that sleep habits may play a role in the pathophysiology of dry eye and compromised lid performance? Prepare to learn about the connection between these factors. As the standard dry eye diagnostic protocol grows ever more expansive, Optometrists shouldn't lose sight of one critically important factor, sleep. Sleep affects almost every aspect of our patient's overall health. For dry eye patients, recent research shows that what happens at night, specifically compromised lid seal and exposure leading to desiccating stress, can have a large impact on symptom severity. In 2017, Corb et al. presented compelling data showing that 61% of symptomatic dry eye patients, including those with mild, moderate, and severe symptoms, demonstrated compromised lid seals. Among patients with grade 1 lid failure, 79% had mild or worse dry eye signs and symptoms. Conversely, 80% of asymptomatic patients showed healthy lid function and demonstrated grade 0 lid seal compromise. This research changed the way I think about the impact of sleep and nighttime desiccating stress in my dry eye patients, as well as the way I manage these patients. Previously, I would typically wait for patients to tell me about certain symptoms before assessing their lid performance and implementing an aggressive nighttime regime. Now, on my first consultation with a patient presenting with dry eye signs or symptoms, I use the Core Blackie Lid Light Test and Lid Snap Test to assess his or her lid performance. I perform these tests before the patient even sits down at the slit lamp. The Core Blackie Lid Light Test allows clinicians to investigate whether a patient's apparently normal closed eyelids are actually protecting the eye during sleep. 
It is a valuable tool and easy to perform, requiring only a chair and a transilluminator. To perform the test, the examiner places the transilluminator against the patient's closed outer upper eyelid, one at a time, and looks for light leakage from the lid area between the lashes. If minor to significant lid leakage is detected, the patient's eyelids may not be protecting the patient from desiccating stress when the eyes are seemingly shut during sleep. This is valuable information in our mission to manage symptoms effectively. The lid snap test is similarly easy to perform. The examiner pulls down the patient's lower eyelid with a cotton swab and lets it snap back into place to reveal the lid's elasticity. Lids with poor elasticity are more likely to underperform while the patient is asleep, exacerbating aggregating factors. Liu et al. found that tear film abnormalities leading to rapid tear evaporation are common among patients displaying floppy eyelid syndrome. Flappy eyelid syndrome appears frequently in patients who experience obstructive sleep apnea, further suggesting the importance of sleep habits in our patients with dry eye. In patients in my practice, I've noticed a correlation between the presentation of moderate to severe dry eye signs and symptoms and the joint presence of meibomian gland dysfunction and poor lid performance. For these patients, I implement an aggressive two-pronged management approach uh, involving in-office and at-home moist heat therapy. I administer my Bomian gland treatments with both the Lipiflow thermal pulsation system and the tear care system to help restore healthy my Bomian gland function. These treatments help to clear blocked channels that render the eye unable to deal with broader desiccating stresses, such as light and airflow. Other beneficial technologies include the Ilux MGD system and intense pulse light. I also recommend that patients purchase a therapeutic sleep mask to protect their compromised eyes and that they continue administering moist heat at home. There are several excellent products for these purposes on the market, including masks tailored specifically to eyes of various sizes and patients' preferences regarding light blocking, such as iSeals 4.0 for nocturnal protection and Tranquilize XL for moist heat. These two solutions, especially when combined, have helped many of my patients achieve improved wetting of the eyes, and they report fewer symptoms in the morning and throughout the day. It's worth noting that although over-the-counter topical gels and ointments continue to play a role in my treatment algorithm, product shortages, rising costs, and general patient discomfort are making these options less attractive compared to device-based solutions that are typically more patient-friendly. Finally, as we consider the role of nighttime desiccating stress in dry eye disease, it's important to take a vigilant stance with patients who wear contact lenses. Given the high overlap between contact lenses and meibomian gland dysfunction, contact lens wearers who complain about dryness, poor lens performance, or fluctuating vision should be screened for MGD before being prescribed a new lens brand or change in wear time or cleaning solution. Fully examining the root cause of patients' complaints takes time, but it's time well spent. Patients and practitioners are fortunate that dry eye research, innovation, and treatment options have burgeoned over the past decade. Earlier, unsophisticated approaches to management, starting by dismissing patient complaints, then proceeding to a reliance on drugs as a cure-all solution, has given way to a more nuanced investigative philosophy that considers multiple etiologies, relevant factors, and treatment protocols, often in combination. In this spirit, it is helpful to take a close look at our patient's risk for nighttime desiccative stress and lid performance issues. 
Implementing a rigorous assessment takes little time and potentially reaps large rewards, including restoring comfort for your patients with dry eye. Why not start now? We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you found the content both interesting and insightful. The Mod Pod will return next year, beginning in January, with a new episode each month. Meet you back here in 2020, the year of vision.